Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Study Sheep and Addendums: Midterms in a Pod. This time, we are reviewing the first half of the semester of Waves with Professor Vinay. So, um, let's get into the questions right away, Professor. So, what is simple harmonic motion, and how does it relate? To the waves that we study for most of this semester so far. So, um, simple harmonic motion. What you have to understand is that the word harmonic really means periodic. It means a motion that repeats. Um, and simple harmonic motion is a particular type of repeating periodic motion where uh, you can describe the motion using uh, a sinusoidal function. Uh, or or a cosine sine a, a sine function and a cosine function are essentially the same thing, as you probably know. Um, so this happens in, in order to get to get periodic motion. What you need to have is a restoring force. Um, so so you have a force that always tries to bring the system back to some equilibrium state. So as soon as you displace the system from equilibrium. There's going to be a force bringing it back that tries to bring it back towards equilibrium, and that's what happens with the mass on a spring. If you stretch the mass, it's going to pull. If you stretch the spring, it's going to pull the mass back towards uh, the original length of the spring. And if you compress the spring, it's going to push the mass back towards uh, the equilibrium position. Um, and to get simple harmonic motion, that force that you get, that restoring force, uh, has to be proportional to the displacement away from equilibrium. So if you're twice as far away from equilibrium, the force is twice as big. And what you see when, when you um, analyze the mathematics of that, you see that this leads to motion that can be described by a sine, a sine function or a cosine function. And it's interesting in terms, it relates to waves because um, what we see when we look at a wave, we see a medium that is actually oscillating. If we look at each piece of the medium, it's actually oscillating in simple harmonic motion. If we're looking at a sinusoidal wave, each piece of the medium is oscillating in simple harmonic motion. So that's why we start the semester by looking at simple harmonic motion. And then we study waves where um, each piece of a medium is undergoing simple harmonic motion, but pieces of a medium that are next to each other are at slightly different places in, in their oscillation. So that's what creates the wave that travels through the medium. I see. So another concept that we've also been struggling with is that um, what's the difference between the wave speed and the velocity of a particle then? Right. Well, you have to think about the fact that each piece of a medium is moving in simple harmonic motion. Right, so the pieces of of the medium, uh, their 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 velocity is changing as time goes by, right? Because in simple harmonic motion, uh, when when the the medium is at maximum displacement, for example, it, it momentarily stops and then it turns around, and when it's at equilibrium, it's moving very very fast. Well, it's moving the fastest that it it moves, right? Because as soon as it crosses equilibrium, it starts to slow down because it's either being pulled back to equilibrium or being pushed back to equilibrium. So it's going to slow down. Um, so so there's there's the motion of the medium, which is simple harmonic motion. And, and there the, the velocity is changing as time goes by. It's described by a sine function. But the wave itself is the, the speed at which the disturbance, the crests and the troughs that the wave is made of are actually moving through the medium. So the wave speed tells you how fast the crests of the wave are moving and and the, the the transverse speed or the transverse velocity is telling you how fast a particular piece of the medium happens to be moving. But you have to understand when there's a wave, right? It looks like the, the crests are propagating through the medium, but the medium itself is not moving from place to place. So an example I give my students when, when we introduce waves, I have them do the wave like at a, a sports event, right? The crowd doing the wave around around the uh, the arena, for example, if, if, if the, the Habs happen to reach a Stanley Cup finals, for example. Um, and, and what happens there, nobody is actually moving from one seat to the other around the arena. Everybody is just getting up and, and sitting back down, but that creates a movement of a wave around the arena. So nobody's moving. The medium in that case is the crowd and nobody is actually changing seats, but there is a wave that's propagating around, around the entire arena. 
And that's what's going on with waves. So every piece of the medium is just oscillating around an equilibrium point. Uh, uh, but, but the wave itself is propagating through the medium. And when we talk about wave speed, we talk about the propagation of the wave through the medium. I see. I think one of the reasons why we struggle a lot with this concept is because um, a wave is also... We've been also been told that a wave doesn't displace particles and it only sends moves energy through the medium. Mm. But at the same time, it's like the particle itself is getting displaced a little bit. Well, they, yeah, the, the particles are getting displaced. Um, but if you look at what the particles are doing, they're just doing simple harmonic motion. So there's no net displacement, I think, of the medium is a better way of saying it. right? So yeah, every piece of the medium is undergoing motion, but it's around the equilibrium point. So on average, uh, there's no motion of the medium at all. right? So every piece of the medium is, is moving around some, some equilibrium point. So it's, it's going on one side to a distance A and on the other side to a distance A. Uh, so if you look at the average position of every piece of the medium, it's always at equilibrium on average. Uh, so so there's no net displacement of the medium. So that is correct. But it doesn't mean that the medium is not doing anything. Because if, if the pieces, if the, the pieces of the medium were not doing anything, you wouldn't have a wave. Thank you for clarifying. Okay. So another question we have is um which variables are related to the characteristics of the medium, of the source, and of the particles? And then how do these variables affect our calculations? Um, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Which variables? Can you list some variables so this, that you're thinking about? So this was a listener question so mm -hmm. i will probably take my own interpretation on it okay i think what they mean is um what are some factors influencing the characteristics of the medium of the source not sure what they mean with the particles yeah i'm not and, sure either i mean the yeah. um I mean, there's 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 a few things there. I guess the the medium itself is the thing that determines the wave speed, right? So what we've learned in class is the specific example of a wave on a string, where the the speed at which a wave will propagate along a string depends on the tension in the string and on the density of the string. And you all just had a lab last week, I think, where um, where you actually saw that in action. Um, by hanging different masses off the string, we could control the tension in the string. And um, we actually used two different strings. One of them was red, the other one was black. They had different densities. Uh, and in that case, what that changed was the speed at which waves were traveling back and forth along that string in the lab. Um, so those are things that, that, uh, that are related to the medium. right? So those variables, the tension and the density, those are related to the medium, and they are the things that tell you how fast a wave is going to propagate in that medium. And then the, um, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what, what exactly the question is getting to in terms of, of other, other variables there, but um, we also know that the, the wave speed is equal to the, the wavelength divided by the period. And that one, that one, the way to remember it is a wave moves forward by one wavelength in a time of one period. And we know that speed is distance over time. So wavelength divided by period. I think on the formula sheet, it actually says it has the V equals lambda F version of that, that relationship. But it's really one wavelength in one period. That's also the wave speed. Um, but the wave, the wave speed is really set by the medium itself. And then if you, if you shake a medium, if you disturb a medium at a certain frequency, then the wavelength will adjust depending on the wave speed. You have no control over the wave speed, right? It's the medium that that, that sets the wave speed. Um, so I hope this helps a bit, but I'm I'm, I'm not sure exactly um, if if that's what the 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 listener was was getting to there. Yeah, I hope this provides some clarity for them as well. Mm -hmm. So the next question is the famous. What is the phase constant and how yes. do you find it? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, 
for this one, it really helps. I, I, I really insist uh, with my students that they they look at the unit circle, right? And, and um, we're, we're describing the motion of a mass on a spring. Let's just look for, for the time being at a mass on a spring. You're describing the motion of a mass on a spring using a cos function. And inside the cos function, you have an angle. Um, and this, the, 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 the mass is moving as time goes by because the angle in the cos function is changing. Now that's what leads to the motion of the mass back and forth. So the cos function uh, oscillates between plus one and minus one, right? As the angle changes. And the mass oscillates between plus a and minus a as, as the cos function goes from plus one to minus one. Um, and at every point of the motion of the mass, right? So you can imagine a mass that starts, let's say you, you take a spring, tie it to a mass, and you stretch the mass and bring it to plus A, and then you just release it. So it's going to be pulled back. It's going gonna, it's gonna to speed up until it reaches X equals zero, the equilibrium point. By that time, it's moving very fast. So it keeps going and it starts to compress the spring. And then it's going to start slowing down. It slows down, slows down, slows down until it reaches minus A. And then it's going, it's going to turn around and start speeding up towards x equals zero again. And then eventually cross equilibrium again, moving back towards positive, uh, towards plus a. And then it's going to be pulled back by the spring. It's going to slow down until it reaches plus a. And then the whole motion will just repeat over and over again. Um, at every point, I mean, the, the cos function started out, it was equal to one when the mass was at plus a. And then the cos function has to decrease as the mass goes to x equals zero, and then it becomes minus one as the mass goes to minus a, and so on and so forth. Um, so the, the reason the cos function is changing is because the angle in the cos function is changing. So that angle in the cos function has a specific value for every point along the motion of the mass. So it has a value when the mass is at plus a, it has a value when the mass is at x equals zero and moving towards the left, it has a value when, uh, when uh, the mass is at minus a. It has a value when the mass is at zero and moving towards the right. And it has a different value when it reaches x equals a again. So that's what we call the phase. That's the angle inside the cos function. Okay. Um, and, and if we start, let's say we start at plus a, um, since cos of zero is equal to one, you could say that the angle initially was zero and then it increases. And when the angle reaches pi over two, cos of pi over two is zero. So that's when your mass reaches x equals zero. And then the angle keeps increasing. Eventually the angle is equal to pi and cos of pi is minus one. And that's when your mass is at x equals minus a. And then the angle keeps increasing again. And it's, it, eventually it's equal to three pi over two and that cos of three pi over two is zero. And the mass is at x equals zero again, but now moving towards the right. And eventually the, the, the angle becomes two pi and the mass is back at x equals uh, plus a. So we've done a full cycle this way, and the angle has gone from zero to pi over two to pi to three pi over two to two pi. Um, so at each of those points, the, the angle has a specific value, and the value of the angle corresponds to a specific point in the motion of the mass. And the phase constant is simply the value of the angle when you start looking at your mass. In the example I gave you, you started when the mass was at x equals plus a. So the angle in the cos function initially was equal to zero, right? So that at your initial time at t equals zero, you would have said that the angle is equal to zero. So in that case, the phase constant would be zero. But you could also decide that instead of starting to look at the mass when it's at plus a, you could decide I'm gonna start looking at the mass when it's at x equals zero and moving towards the left, Right? You're, free, you're free to start looking at that time. It's like in the first lab when you press start on your record button for the mass oscillating back and forth on the track. Right? You didn't have to press start. You, you could press start whenever you want. So the phase constant is just the value of the angle when t is equal to zero. So if you start looking at your mass when it's at x equals zero and moving towards the left, then the angle that corresponds to that is pi over two because cos of pi over two is zero. And if you're moving towards the left, it means the cos function is decreasing. Uh, and, and if you look at your unit circle and the angle is getting bigger and bigger, when the angle is pi over two, you're at the top of the unit circle, right? But you're turning counterclockwise. So 
So the cos function goes from being zero to being negative. So at pi over two, that's when the mass is at x equals zero moving towards the left. So your phase constant, if you start looking at your mass at that time, if you decide to say, this is my initial time, when the mass is at x equals zero moving towards the left, then your phase constant has to be pi over two. Because when t equals zero, the, 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 the position of the mass is described by x of zero is equal to a cos of pi over two. So you have to, you have, to have a phase constant of pi over two. So that's that the only... The only thing the phase constant represents is the value of the angle inside your cos function when you decide to start looking at the mass and describing its motion. Now, I know it, it gets confusing because mathematically, I mean, you have to do inverse trig functions uh, to, to solve for it. But conceptually, it really just represents what is the value of the angle when I started looking at my mass. Okay, so that was for simple harmonic motion. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to waves, though, mm -hmm. like an actual traveling wave, how do you find out what's the phase constant value? Because I know it changes depending on whether, like, on the snapshot graph, the wave is moving to the left or it's moving to the right. How yeah, do you the, okay. determine the phase yes. constant value? Yeah. So it, it's a bit tricky. Uh, you, have to, you have to watch for a few things there. So first of all, when we were doing simple harmonic motion, in the first part of the semester, we're studying simple harmonic motion. And we pretty much always describe, at least the textbook, always describe the motion using a cos function. And, and your equation is always x of t is equal to a cos of omega t plus phi naught. So if you imagine what the angle in the cos function is doing as time goes by, the angle just gets bigger and bigger, right? Because if t gets bigger, omega t plus phi naught gets bigger. So on the unit circle, you have to pay attention to what's happening along the horizontal line because you're looking at the cos function. The cos function describes a displacement in this case. This describes x. And the angle is always getting bigger, so you're always turning counterclockwise along the unit circle. And if you pay attention to that, you can figure out in each of the four quadrants, is the displacement positive or negative? And is, is the, the velocity positive or negative? And you can sort of make a little diagram where in each quadrant you, you, write, you, you just make a note of displacement positive or negative, velocity positive or negative. When we're doing wave motion, the equation we're using, in most cases, we use, we use a sine function instead of a cos function. And that's just convention. That's just what the textbook does. It would be fine to use a cos function to describe a wave, but it's just not what we're doing. Uh, it's a choice the, book, the books have made. Uh, pretty much all textbooks do it that way. Um, so then when you're looking at your unit circle and you look at the angle and you want to figure out is the displacement positive or negative and is the velocity positive or negative, you have to be looking at the vertical axis because it's the, the sine function is describing the displacement of the medium. right? So that's one difference between what we did in the first chapter and what we did in the second chapter of the course. You have to look at the, the vertical axis. The other thing you have to watch out for is we are using the equation for, the, for a traveling wave is sine of kx plus or minus omega t, right? And, and if, we, if the wave is moving towards positive x, then uh, we are going to use sine of kx minus omega t. And if the wave is moving towards negative x, we're going to use sine of kx plus omega t. And this is important because if your wave is moving towards the right, then it's described by sine of kx minus omega t. What that means is the angle inside your sine function, as time increases, as time goes by, this angle is getting smaller, not bigger, right? Because the angle is described by kx minus omega t, plus, plus phi naught, of course, right? But the k, since it's kx minus omega t, when time gets bigger, the angle gets smaller. And on the unit circle, that means that you, your, your angle is actually turning clockwise, not counterclockwise, because the angle is decreasing, not increasing as time goes by. So you have to look at what's happening at, uh, on the vertical axis to your sine function, but you have to look at what's happening to it as you turn clockwise along the unit circle. And then you can figure out in which quadrants is velocity positive or negative uh, for your medium. So, so th that's something that I've noticed students students have uh, do struggle with, right? Um, and then the other 
the other piece of of the puzzle is in in most cases with with simple harmonic motion will tell you in the question the mass starts at x equals i don't know 3 uh, centimeters to the right of equilibrium and it's moving at minus 5 centimeters per second or something like that so you're given the the position and the the velocity uh, for waves sometimes we can give you snapshot graphs and from that snapshot graph, if we tell you the wave is moving to the right or to the left, you have to figure out the piece of the medium that you're looking at is, is its velocity positive or negative, right? Is that piece of the medium moving up or down as, as, your, as your wave moves along the graph? And there you have to think, you have to imagine your wave moving and then figure out if that piece of the medium moves up or down in a, in a, in a few seconds. Um, so, so sometimes instead of telling you what the initial velocity is, you have to figure it out yourselves. So, so that's a, a, an added complication when, when we're looking at, at traveling waves. So since we're already on the topic of like snapshot and, um, yes. history graphs, what mm -hmm. exactly are these graphs? Like what are their axes and how do right. you go from one type of graph to another? Right. So a snapshot graph, like the name implies, it's a bit like a picture of a wave at one instant. Um, you have to be careful. And it's not exactly a picture of a wave because your, your graph will be a sine or a cos function, but it can also represent a longitudinal wave where the displacement is not perpendicular to the motion. So you have to be a bit careful there. But the idea of a snapshot graph is to give you a picture of the wave at one instant. So the, the axes will be displacement on the y-axis and the, the, um, the horizontal axis will represent x. It will represent different pieces of the medium. So what you're seeing there is the displacement of different pieces of the medium at one particular instant in time. And that's why it's a snapshot. It's a picture of what the wave is doing at one instant. Um, so from that you can get the amplitude right where you have where you have the, the the peaks that's that you can read the amplitude off of that and what you will read if you look at the 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 length of a full cycle on that graph since the horizontal axis represents x represents space um, the length of a full cycle will be one wavelength the history graph is showing you it's going to look very similar but what it's showing you is what one particular piece of the medium is doing as time goes by and each piece of the medium is in simple harmonic motion so it's going to be a graph of simple harmonic motion on the y on the vertical axis you have displacement just like on the snapshot graph but your horizontal axis there is time so what you're being told is one piece of the medium what is it doing as time changes so from that graph you can get the amplitude the same as you can from the snapshot graph because the maximum displacement is still the amplitude but on the horizontal axis if you look at one full cycle since the horizontal axis represents time one full cycle is one period not one wavelength so from the history graph you can get the period and the amplitude and from the snapshot graph you can get the wavelength and, and the amplitude and, and to go from one to the other um going from snapshot to history i find that the best way of doing it is if you're given a snapshot graph, uh, make a few other snapshot graphs at, at various increments of time later on, right? And then, and then you can make a little dot, let's say that you're asked from that to draw the history graph for x equals three, for example, right? And you have a little triangle moving along the medium towards the right or something like that. Draw it at different times and make a little dot at x equals 3 to see the displacement of the medium at x equals 3 at different times. And that's what you want to be graphing on your history graph. You're trying to graph the displacement of a particular point at different times. So it really helps to just draw a few snapshot graphs at successive times if, if you're going to be asked to do that. I see. Okay. So, hmm. I guess we'll skip a little bit ahead and move on to kind of if the superstition, I mean, not superstition, if the superposition <laughs> yeah. of two traveling waves in the yeah. same direction mm -hmm. gives another traveling waves, 
Yes. What does two traveling waves in the opposite directions give? Well, that's that's a standing wave. So that that's that's how you get a standing wave is by having two waves traveling in in opposite directions. Uh, and what happens there is um, th there's going to be places where um, crests are always meeting crests and troughs are always meeting troughs, and that's a place where you'll have an antinode where the medium will oscillate. Uh, with very large amplitude, It'll oscillate basically with an amplitude 2a. Uh, but there's going to be places um, a bit further away where a crest from one of the waves is always meeting a trough from from the other wave, and and vice versa. Um, so that at that point the two waves are, are are going to cancel, and that's where you find nodes. Uh, so places where the amplitude of oscillation is zero. So having two waves travel in opposite directions, instead of getting another traveling wave, you get a wave that's just standing still. Um, in terms of you don't have side, you don't have uh, motion of crests and troughs through the medium. You simply have oscillation in place of of the medium, uh, with certain places where you have large amplitude and cer certain places where the amplitude is smaller, all the way down to zero. And that's why we call it a standing wave, because you don't have crests and troughs moving through the medium anymore. So I heard that for standing waves, you also have to set boundary conditions, and that's yes. how you derive the equations. Yes, so yes, how yes. So, you set those? So, 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 so the way that you actually can create standing waves, you, you need waves that travel in opposite directions. Right, so in in, in in the real world, the way you're going to get that is by having waves bounce back and forth between boundaries of, of a medium. So in the lab, for example, where you had your string that was stretched uh, between the motor and the pulley, uh, when your motor was actually generating waves that traveled in one direction, but when those waves hit the pulley, the pulley is a fixed point, and and most of the wave actually just reflects back in the other direction. So you have the motor that was sending waves down the, the string in one direction, and those waves are bouncing at the pulley, bouncing back in the opposite direction. So you constantly have waves traveling in opposite directions along the string, and that's how you get a standing wave. Um, but to do that, you have to have boundaries to your medium. And those boundaries can either be points where the medium has been fixed, physically fixed, and prevented from moving, and that's what was happening in that example. Right at the pulley, the string was was resting on the pulley, so the string couldn't oscillate up and down because it's just resting on the pulley and it's being pulled down by the mass. Right, so that piece of that that piece of string cannot oscillate, so it has to be a node. And at the other end, at the motor, uh, the the I mean, the motor was vibrating a bit, but very low amplitude, if you remember. So that piece of the medium was also being prevented from oscillating. So you had two points where the waves are bouncing back and forth because at that point, the medium is being prevented from oscillating. So the only standing waves you can set up in that medium are standing waves where you're going to have nodes at those two locations. Okay, and then, and then there's a few ways of doing that. Well, there's many ways, and you, you, you learned in class how to draw them. Uh, and it turns out that you can have a standing wave where you fit half a wavelength in that length of string that you had in the lab. That will be the first, the first mode of oscillation. Um, and then you'll have one where you can fit one standing wave in the length L, uh, sorry, one wavelength in the length L, or you could fit three halves or, or four halves or five halves, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how, how you derive that. Um, the, the other kind of boundary to a medium is one where the medium is actually free to oscillate. And that seems a bit counterintuitive that the wave would bounce back at a medium where it's free, uh, the, uh, at a, a boundary where the medium is free to oscillate, but it does happen for example, with air in a, in a tube. So if you have a tube that is uh, open at both ends, so like a flute, for example, um, when, when the, the, the wave goes from the constrained medium that the tube is into an open, completely open room full of air, the wave does bounce back. Some of the wave actually reflects. Instead of going from the flute into the room, some of the, the sound actually bounces back into the flute. Um, or, or with the example you had in the lab, you had a, you had a tube of glass and we were sending waves down that tube of glass by, by, by holding a tuning fork above it. 
and the waves were bouncing on the surface of the water, that's obvious, right? That there's going to be reflection there. Uh, but then the wave that was moving up doesn't necessarily just escape uh, the tube. Some of it does bounce back. Um, some of it escapes because we heard the sound also. But at at a at an interface where the medium is free to move, you do have some reflection of the waves. Uh, so we set up a standing wave there too. Now the the interface between the water and the air, the air molecules there are hitting the water, so they cannot oscillate with high amplitude. But at the opening of the tube, the air molecules there are free to oscillate. There's nothing to prevent them from oscillating, so you can have an antinode there where the air molecules oscillate with with high amplitude. Um, so what you need in a case like that, the, the tube with one open end and one closed end that you had in the lab, the closed end must be a node uh, in terms of displacement of the medium because the medium is actually hitting something hard there. And the opening of the tube has to be an anti-node. And then you can only draw waves that have that characteristic of having an, a node at one end and an anti-node at the other end. And that's how that's and, and once you draw the first few of those, you'll see that the condition there is that in your length of air that's oscillating, you can only have one quarter wavelength or three quarter wavelengths or five quarter wavelengths. That's what you did in your pre-lab for for that lab. Um, so that's yeah, that's how you get standing waves. The idea is that you always have waves bouncing back and forth between two uh, two boundaries of a medium, and that's that's how you get those waves moving in opposite directions. But it, it can only happen between two boundaries. And the boundaries can be fixed or open. And, and then there's different conditions. Okay. So you were also talking about nodes and anti-nodes. Yes. yes. So uh, how would you describe these in terms of interference? Um, yeah, inter if, if you want to do it in terms of interference, the nodes are where you basically have destructive interference between the two waves traveling in opposite directions. It's really points where um, crests are always meeting troughs and troughs are always meeting crests so that the, the waves are always the opposite of each other at that point. And that's why the medium, when you add the, the contribution of both waves, the medium doesn't move at all at those points. So those points are, in a sense, points of, of, of destructive interference. And the anti-nodes are the opposite. It's where crests are, of one wave are always meeting crests of the other, um, or troughs are always meeting troughs. And the two waves are always in phase at, at that point. And that's why the medium gets large oscillations at that point. So the, the anti-nodes would essentially be points of constructive interference of the two waves moving in opposite directions. So we're going to kind of circle back to right. um, two waves traveling in the same direction yes. now. Yes. So how do we find then like whether there's destructive or constructive interference when like the waves are superimposed on each other? Right. So so again, it's, it's a question of if crests are meeting crests and troughs are meeting troughs or if crests are meeting troughs and troughs are meeting crests, right? So if, if the two waves are perfectly aligned, right, with crests on top of crests and troughs on top of troughs, um, both waves are doing the same thing to the medium at the same time. So uh, if one wave is, is making the medium oscillate upward while the, the, the second wave is also making the medium oscillate upward at the same time, then then you'll get a large displacement of, of the medium. Um, if one wave wants the medium to oscillate upward, while at the same time the other wave wants the medium to oscillate downward, then the medium will do nothing as a result. Um, so it's really a question of, you look at the two waves, um, you can draw them one on top of the other, and if, if they're perfectly aligned, then you get constructive interference. But if they're perfectly misaligned, right? they're perfectly out of phase with crests of one wave aligned with troughs of the other, uh, then, then those two waves they just they just completely cancel. Now, in general, you can have you can have uh, any case in between. Um, the, the the phase difference between the the two waves doesn't need to to be zero or pi, right? You don't need to have both waves perfectly lined up or both waves perfectly misaligned. You could have anything in between. Uh, but in a lot of cases, we we look at the extreme cases where you have perfectly constructive or perfectly destructive interference. Um, note also that we're always limiting ourselves to the case where both waves have the same amplitude. 
because if one wave had a bigger amplitude than the other, then then you wouldn't get perfectly destructive interference. But we simplify things in, in the course by by limiting ourselves to waves with the same uh, the same amplitude. And and there's an equation on the formula sheet, right, for two waves moving in the same direction. It, it says two a cos of delta phi over two times sine of kx plus or minus omega t or something like that. The two a cos of delta phi over two that that is the resultant amplitude for two waves traveling in the same direction. The delta phi is the phase difference between the two waves. Um, and if you can you can just check if the phase difference between the two waves is zero. And that means that the, the, the waves are perfectly aligned, right? So you have crests on top of crests and troughs on top of troughs. Um, and if you plug that into the equation, 2a cos of delta phi over 2, where delta phi is 0, you get 2a cos of 0. Cos of 0 is 1. So that means your amplitude in that case is 2a. And that means constructive, perfectly constructive interference. If If the waves are perfectly misaligned, it would mean that uh, you have crests on top of troughs, right? And therefore, delta phi has to be, if you have crests on top of troughs, it's because you've taken your two waves that were perfectly aligned, and one of them has been shifted by half a wavelength or half a cycle. Uh, and that corresponds to pi radians, because one full cycle is two pi radians. So if one of the waves is pi radians out of phase with the other, they should interfere destructively because you'll have crests on top of troughs. And if we look at our equation on the formula sheet, where the amplitude is 2a cos of delta phi over 2, if you plug a delta phi of pi in there, you'll get 2a cos of pi over 2. But cos of pi over 2 is 0. So the equation is telling you when the phase difference between my two waves is pi, you get perfectly destructive interference. Okay, so this phase difference that you mentioned, we've yes. seen two of them. One is the inherent phase difference, yes. and one is just the phase difference. Well, okay, so, so the... the phase difference can come from two different, uh, there, there, there can be two explanations for it. So let's say you have, I mean, there's a bunch of problems in, in, in our practice sets and our assignments that we give students that involve two speakers, right? So you have two loudspeakers that are producing sound. And when we say that they're in phase, it means that both speakers are creating crests at the same time and troughs at the same time. So they're, they're in sync with each other, basically. Okay, and in that case, the only source, the only possible source, if you're at a place where the two waves are adding up destructively, it can only come from the fact that one of the waves has had to travel a bigger distance to reach you than the other wave because they're both producing crests at the same time and troughs at the same time. So if both waves travel the same distance to reach you, then the crests of one wave and the crests of the other wave will reach you at the same time. So if you're, it, but if one of the waves has to travel a bigger distance to reach you, then it, it makes the crests and troughs uh, no longer necessarily in sync with each other by the time they reach you. Um, and then, uh, in order to get destructive interference in such a case, one wave would have to travel an extra half wavelength to meet to reach you, or three half wavelengths, or five half wavelengths, because that the shift that that would introduce, uh, if you take two waves that are aligned and you shift one of them by half a wavelength, then all of a sudden you've brought crests of one wave in sync with the troughs of the other one. Okay, so so the the total phase difference can come from the fact that you're at a point where one wave had to travel a bigger distance than the other one to reach you. That's one possible source of, of the total phase difference. But the other possible source of phase difference is the speakers don't need to be emitting crests at the same time and troughs at the same time, right? So the speakers could be out of sync with each other. And it could be that one speaker is emitting crests while the other one is emitting troughs. And then they would be perfectly out of phase with each other. Okay, and, and, and then that would mean that if you're standing at a place where both waves travel the same distance to get to you, but one of the speakers is emitting a crest while the other one is emitting a trough, then at that location, what you're receiving is a crest from one speaker and a trough from the other speaker at the same time. And those will cancel, and you would have perfectly destructive interference. So you have to take both things into account, right? And if you move to a place where one of the waves travel a bit travels a bigger distance to reach you than the other one, 
even though one is emitting one speaker is emitting a crest while the other is emitting a trough, you can get the crests from both waves to be back in sync with each other if one of the waves travels an extra half wavelength to reach you, for example. So then the, the total phase difference could be made to be 2 pi. So it would start out as, as pi because one of the speakers is emitting a crest while the other one is emitting a trough. So your inherent phase difference would be pi. But then if you add to that a path difference of half a wavelength, which corresponds to pi radians, then you can make the total phase difference 2 pi, and then you get constructive interference again. I see. Okay. Well, like along with this part of the unit, mm -hmm. there, we also got introduced to beats. And that's sure. kind of yeah. like confusing for me. Um, mm -hmm. Like, is this phase difference tied to beats somehow? Or it's actually not. No. So you have to be careful. Um, when we're talking about superposition, when when we're doing waves traveling in the same direction, right? We're making a few assumptions there that maybe we don't make explicit enough every time. We're assuming we have waves that have the same amplitude, and we're assuming we have waves that have the same frequency and wavelength. Okay. Um, that that's what we assume when we're looking at at uh, perfectly constructive and perfectly destructive interference for waves moving in the same direction, and it's what we assume when we look at standing waves. Okay, um, but what we're looking at when we talk about beats is you're adding two waves that have slightly different frequencies. So we're no longer looking at identical waves. We're looking at waves that are slightly different in terms of their frequency. And what happens then is that since their frequencies are not quite matched to each other, if you imagine that, um, imagine two people just clapping their hands, right? And one of them claps their hands every second. And the other person claps their hand every 1.1 second, right? So their first clap will be synchronized. Their second clap will be 0.1 seconds apart. The third clap will be 0.2 seconds apart. The third clap will be 0.3 seconds apart. And the, 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 the difference between the claps will, will, will keep growing, right? So that at some point, um, you have one person clapping and the other person clapping 0.5 seconds later. And it looks like they're completely clapping out of sync with each other. But then the difference will keep increasing. And if the difference between the claps becomes one second, and one person is clapping every second, then all of a sudden they're clapping in sync with each other again, right? So, and then, but then, then they'll be 0.1 second apart and 0.2 and 0.3 and 0.4 and 0.5. And when they're 0.5 seconds apart, it seems like they're completely out of sync with each other. Um, so, so what happens is the fact that they're slightly, they're, they're clapping with slightly different frequencies means that there will be times when they're clapping almost at the same time. And then there'll be times when they're clapping completely not at the same time, completely out of sync with each other. Uh, and that's what beats are. Okay, there are, there are times when the two waves are in sync with each other and they add up to give you a wave with a high amplitude. And then there's times a short time later when they get completely out of sync with each other and they interfere destructively and you get low amplitude. And then they get back in sync with each other and you get high amplitude and they get out of sync again and you get low amplitude. And that's what we hear as beats. When, when you have beats, you hear uh, an amplitude going up and down, up and down, up and down. And, and, and that's, that's um, that, but that's due to the fact that you're adding waves that has slightly different frequencies. We're not talking about identical waves anymore. The phenomenon is due to the fact that the waves have different frequencies. Let's see. Okay. That makes it like a bit clearer. Um, okay. Hmm. So I guess we'll have to whoosh back a little bit for this one. Okay. Um, I think also in that unit we were introduced to like 2D and 3D waves from two sources. Sure. And we yeah. were supposed to draw the diagrams of how they interfered with each other and then yes. identify anti-nodal and nodal lines sure like, how do you find where these lines are right so to represent waves in 2d you have to use wave fronts 
right? You, you draw these solid lines that represent the locations where you have crests of the wave. And if the waves are spreading out in, in two dimensions, then those wave fronts will be circles centered on the source of the wave, right? And the distance between the wave fronts is one wavelength. And if you have two sources, what you'll have is a set, two sets of concentric circles that, that sort of overlap each other. And where, where these lines are crossing, it means that a crest is meeting a crest. Uh, and if, if a crest is meeting a crest, then that, that's a, a point of constructive interference. You also have places where a trough is meeting a trough. And that's also a point of constructive interference because there the two waves are doing the same thing at the same time. So by joining together points where crests meet crests or troughs meet troughs, you get these lines that are actually uh, mathematically they're, they're hyperbole. Uh, and those, those lines are where um the 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 two waves are 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 having perfectly constructive interference on the other hand if you have places where a crest is meeting a trough or a trough is meeting a crest those are places where the two waves are doing the opposite of each other and that's where they they cancel and by joining these points together you you'll see that you also have uh hyperbole but where where you have destructive interference uh, so that that's how you would do it. You you look for points where the two waves are, the, where crests meet crests or troughs meet troughs, and that tells you where you have constructive interference. And you look for points where crests are meeting troughs or troughs are meeting crests, and that's where you would have destructive interference. And then you see this this pattern appear, where these lines are all hyperbole. So is there a way to identify how many of these lines we should draw or do we have to actually map it all out and count um i mean yeah there's mathematically there there there, there's ways of figuring out you know how many lines exist but um i think for the purposes of, of of um I don't know if you did a worksheet in class with a bunch of students might have, there's a worksheet that we have available to teachers where, where you can do that. Um, there, there's few enough that you can, you can actually just do them all by hand and figure out how many are present. Right. But it really depends on the distance between the two sources and how many wavelengths are present, uh, between the two sources. Um, yeah, that's that's how you would sort of figure out how many how many lines there are. But what you're trying to do is draw lines. Uh, the the lines you draw represent places where the path difference is a constant, right? So, right in between the two sources, you have a straight line that represents delta r equals zero, right? Because you're equidistant from the two sources, right? And that line is where if the sources are in phase, that line is constructive interference. Right, crests will always meet crests and troughs always meet troughs right in between the two sources. And then on either side of that, you'll have a line where the wave from one speaker has traveled one wavelength more than the wave from the other speaker. And that's going to be constructive interference also um, if, if the waves are in phase. Um, and then if you keep going away from the center, you'll, you might have a, a place where one of the waves has traveled two wavelengths more than the other. And then you'll have a place where one of the waves has traveled maybe three wavelengths more than the other. But at some point, when you move away from the center, you're going to hit one of the sources. And then once you hit the source, then, then that's, you, can't, you can't fit more lines. The lines all pass between the sources. Um, so, so that's, it really depends on how far the sources are from each other to know how many how many lines you can fit there. But you have to remember that um, the lines are really places where delta r is zero or one one wavelength or two wavelengths or three a whole number of wavelengths for for constructive interference for sources that are in phase with each other. Okay, I see. Um. And this would all be a lot easier with yeah, actual like visual. An actual it's, it's hard visual. to it's hard to explain just with words. Unfortunately. So I guess the recommendation is to do the worksheet. That absolutely, it's it's a, yes, it's it's a great worksheet for 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 visualizing what's actually happening uh, in two D when you have two sources. Yeah, I see. 
So I think this is kind of our final conceptual question. Okay. It's, um, what is the Doppler effect and ah. <laughs> why does it occur? All right. Well, there's two, two different ways of getting the Doppler effect. One is if the source of the wave is moving. And the other is if the um, the observer is is moving, and and physically there's it, the explanation is different in the two situations. It leads to the same result, which is if if you have an observer and a source, and if the source is approaching the observer or the observer is approaching the source, the frequency that will be perceived by the observer will be higher than the frequency emitted by the source. And you experience that in everyday life. If there's a car coming towards you, the pitch of the sound you hear from the car is higher than if you have a car moving away from you. Um, and similarly, if the source is moving away from you or if the observer is moving away from the source, the frequency perceived by the observer is lower than the frequency emitted by the source. Now, the reason for that is, is different if the source is moving or if the observer is moving. If the source is moving, if we go back to uh, the idea of, of um, a diagram showing the waves spreading away from a source in 2D, where you have all these circles that represent wave fronts, um, if the source is standing still, all the circles will just be concentric with the source at the center, right? So the, the wave fronts that were emitted longer ago will now have moved further away from the source. Those would be the big circles. And then the ones that were emitted later are smaller and smaller and smaller circles, but they're all centered on where the source is sitting. If the source is moving, though, then uh, the, the, the wave fronts that were emitted long ago are centered on where the source was when the source emitted those, those wave fronts. And as the source moves, the, the wave fronts that it emits they all get shifted sideways because they're all centered on where the source was when those wave fronts were emitted, but the source is moving. So you'll have a bunch of, of circles that are no longer concentric. They're all shifted a bit to one side. Uh, and what that does is in front of the source, all the wave fronts get uh, squished closer together than they would be if the source wasn't moving. And behind the source, all the wave fronts are farther apart from each other than they would be if the source wasn't moving. So what's happening, happening there is that physically in front of the source, the distance between crests of the wave is shorter than the wavelength of the wave if the, if the source is standing still. And behind the source, the distance between crests of the waves is longer than the wavelength of the wave if the source is standing still. So if you're an observer and you're standing in front of the source, you've got all these crests moving towards you, and they're moving at the speed of the wave, normal speed of the wave, but they're closer together than they would be if the source wasn't moving. So if you have got these crests that are close together, they're all moving at the normal speed of the wave, then you will be receiving them at a rate that is faster than you'd be receiving them uh, if, if they were more widely spaced, because they're closer together. So you're receiving them, uh, the time between you receiving any two of them is shorter. So that's why the period is shorter and the frequency is higher. So physically, the wave the wavelengths are shorter in front of the source. Behind the source, it's the reverse. The distance between between wave, wave fronts is longer. Uh, so the time between you receiving two successive crests is longer. So the period is longer and the, and the frequency is lower. So that's what's happening when the source is moving. It's the actual wavelength behind and in front is shorter or longer uh, than than it would be if the source was standing still. And that's what leads to you perceiving a higher frequency if you're in front of the if the source is moving towards you and a, a lower frequency if if the source is moving away from you when the observer is moving it's different you can imagine a source just sitting there and it's emitting crests it's emitting wave fronts and those wave fronts are all spaced uh, by the wavelength lambda <clears throat> in all directions around the source because the source is just sit sitting still so the wavelength hasn't changed but if the observer is moving towards the source, then you have these wave fronts approaching the observer and they're moving at the speed of sound, right? At the speed of the wave. But the observer is moving towards them. So the speed at which they're approaching each other is bigger than the speed, the normal speed of the wave. So even though the distance between the crests is really still one wavelength, 
the rate at which you're receiving them, if you're an observer and you're moving towards those crests, the time it takes for two successive crests to reach you will be shorter because the speed at which you're approaching you is bigger because you're moving towards them as they move towards you. So the relative speed between you and the crest is increased. That decreases the amount of time between any two successive crests, makes the period shorter, so the frequency higher. And if you're running away from the source, then the wave crests are, they have to catch up with you. So they're approaching you more slowly than if you were standing still. So even though, again, the distance between two crests is just the normal wavelength, the time between two crests reaching you will be longer than it would be if you were standing still because you're moving away from the crest. So they're effectively approaching you at a speed that is lower than the normal speed of the wave. And it takes longer for two crests to reach you. So that makes the period longer and the, 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 the frequency lower. So the physical explanation is different in both cases, uh, but the end result is the same. I see. Okay. So that is it for the conceptual questions. And now we just okay. have like general test concerns. So yes. there's been a lot of equations in waves. So sure. what should we do during the exam if like we don't know what formula to use or if we have like a weird variable pop out and we can't locate it on the formula sheet? I mean, the formula sheet is pretty exhaustive in terms of the formulas you need to know for for, for this midterm, right? The, they're, they're pretty much all there. I mean, the, the ones that aren't there are ones that you're supposed to sort of be able to work out quickly on your own, like the, the conditions for wavelengths on a standing wave on a string, right? Those, you, you just do a, a, a few drawings and, and they're there, right? Uh, you can figure them out on your own. Um, Everything else is pretty much there. I mean, you have the equation for two waves traveling in the same direction. You have your equation for simple harmonic motion. You have your equation for a traveling wave. You have omega square root of k over m. You have v square root of t over mu. All, all these things, the, the, the Doppler effect is there. The trick there is you have to choose the right signs for your observer or for your source, depending on, on the situation. And you have to justify that clearly. Um, but what I would say is is... The equations you're going to need to use should be pretty obvious from 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 the question itself, right? I mean, we've we've done three chapters. One chapter was simple harmonic motion. It's a mass on a spring. Um, so that one, the equations that, that that are relevant, you have the kinetic energy and potential energy equations, right? The one half mv squared and one half kx squared. You have f equals minus kx. Um, that's the force of of from a spring, uh, Hooke's law. Um, you have the omega is square root of k over m, telling you what the angular frequency is going to be given a certain mass and a certain spring. And then you have the equation describing simple harmonic motion. x of t is a cos of omega t plus phi naught. They're all there. And if you're if, you, if the problem you're looking at is a problem of simple harmonic motion, those are the equations that you're going to have to use. Um, the second chapter we did was traveling waves. All right, in that one, you have your displacement of x and t equation. You know, d of x and t is a sine of kx plus or minus omega t plus phi naught. That's the main equation that you're using. And then um, you, you, have, you have to remember, I mean, k is 2 pi over lambda. That's your wave number, radians per meter. Even that one, it's on the formula sheet. But if you don't remember... The wave number is simply radians per meter. And you know that in one full wavelength, one full wavelength is one full cycle. So there's two pi radians in one wavelength, two pi over lambda. The same thing for omega is two pi f or omega is two pi over the period. There's one full cycle in one period of time. One full cycle is two pi. So two pi radians over the period is, is omega. So those you... Even if the formulas weren't there on the formula sheet, you can easily sort of remember them just by thinking about the units there. Um, so I, I would say, yeah, identify what the problem is asking about. So you have simple harmonic motion. You have the second chapter was on waves. And then in that one, uh, we also did the Doppler effect, which is on the formula sheet. And we also did decibels, which which are on the formula sheet, right? So... If, if it's a problem about sound intensity, you know you're going to have to do decibels or something like that, right? If it's a problem where you have 
a source is moving and an observer is moving, you know that's the Doppler effect, and then you have to you'll have to use that equation. And then we did superposition, and then there's three different cases, right? You have waves traveling in the same direction, um, and you have waves traveling in opposite directions, where you get standing waves, and and we also have beats, where you have waves with different frequencies, and those are sort of the the the, the three different cases that we've looked at. So it should be pretty obvious from the content of the question, which of these main topics uh, we're, we're, we're aiming for. So hopefully, if you, if you do enough practice problems, you, you'll be able to identify the questions, right? But it's really, there's simple harmonic motion, there's waves, uh, traveling waves, there's the Doppler effect, there's decibels or intensity, sound intensity, there's waves in the same direction there's standing waves and there's beats those are the main topics that we've studied it, it it looks like a lot when you're in the middle of it but when you step back and you look at what we actually learned um it, it there, there's a limited number of topics there so hopefully you don't get too confused about what equations you you should use because the the uh the the, the physical concepts that apply to each question should should be obvious to you if you've practiced enough. Okay, so do you have any final tips for us when we're writing our solutions? Yes, okay, so um, a good thing to do is to have a look at the whole exam before, before starting to answer. Um, because that, that helps you plan your time. You have a limited amount of time. Hopefully, you have time to do everything, right? We're not giving you a... We're, we, we make our tests so that students have time to answer all the questions if you, if you, if you know what you're doing. Um, but in the case where maybe you run out of time, you want to make sure that, that you don't run out of time to do questions that you know you could have done. So have a look at the entire test and make sure that you start by answering all the questions for which you're sure you know the answer. And all those points will be in the bank and you build up your confidence, right? So get those out of the way right away and, um, and, then, and then start working on the ones that you think you know what you're gonna, you, you need to do, but you know you're going to need a bit of time and you're going to have to think a little bit before, before you, know, you know exactly what to do. You're going to have to maybe try a few things or, or you know. so. Manage your exam. Manage your exam. Start with the questions you know, you're sure you know you're going to get, and then move to the ones where you're pretty sure you know what you're going to, you need to do. It's just that it, it's going to take you a bit more time and thinking. And then if there's a few questions that you think are uh, a bit harder for you, then keep them to the end and only come to the, those once you've, you've uh, made sure to, to sort out all the ones that you know you can get. Uh, that way, if, if you do run out of time, uh, well, you're running out of time for questions where maybe you wouldn't have been doing super well anyway, so it, it doesn't cost you as much. Uh, so that's one piece of advice. Um, the other piece of advice is when you're writing, so, so obviously for multiple choice, you don't need to justify anything, right? You just, you just circle the right answer, hopefully, and, 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 and then you're done. Um, but for any other questions, you need to justify your answer. Uh, so don't assume that the teacher knows that you know what you're doing because because we don't, right? We don't know if you're guessing. We don't know if you just got lucky. Uh, so make sure you justify, show us your reasoning. And, and that does two things. So first of all, uh, it's required. And second of all, it makes it a lot easier for us to follow your reasoning. And if something ever goes wrong in your solution, if it's very clear where you went wrong, I mean, we'll penalize you for the thing you did wrong, but if you're being internally consistent with everything else, it's really easy for us to go, oh, okay, I get what was going on here. The only thing that happened is, oh, you, you, you missed a factor of two in your algebra here, but everything else is perfect. You'll get nine out of 10. But if you're not justifying anything and you make a mistake halfway through the question and we can't tell where the mistake came from or, or what the mistake was, you're going to lose a lot more marks, right? We can't give part marks for things that we don't see on the page. So it's good for you because, I mean, it, it helps us find, uh, understand your reasoning and give you all the marks that you deserve for everything that you've shown to us that you understand. It makes it easier for you also to double check your work and catch your own mistakes if, you, if you've made mistakes here and there. And, and hopefully you have time to review a bit at the end. So yes, try to 
present your work clearly and, and justify all your steps so that your teacher knows that you know what you're doing. And then we can give you marks for, for what you actually know how to do. Okay. Thank you for all, right. all your time, Professor Vinay. You're welcome. It was really helpful. Okay, I hope I hope it was, and uh, good luck, everyone. And go go and see your teachers during office hours, and <laughs> practice with each other. Don't don't do everything on your own, right? The the worst thing you can do is try to just do all the problems on your own and understand everything on your own. Go ask questions to your teachers. Uh, go ask questions to any of the teachers. We're all happy to help you if if the, your teacher's office hours don't work with your schedule. You can come and see anyone uh, whenever you want. And, and yeah, and work, work together, study together. That's, that's really, really helpful. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. Thank you, Professor. Thank you.